Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadon. The sons of Dadon were Asherim, Letashim, and Leamin. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanach, Abidah, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from Isaac, from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Give us your Holy Spirit to understand your word, illumine us, and also, Spirit, lift us into the presence of you, our living Lord, who in great love and grace and truth sent Jesus to live with us, die for us, and rise again. Do a good work even now. Jesus, we pray for your sake and in your name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was a younger lad, and people would talk about having midlife crises, a midlife crisis, I thought, those aren't real, midlife crisis. There's nothing to it. It's a myth. And if you want to buy a sports car, just buy a sports car, right? You don't need to fool yourself into having a midlife crisis. It's not like you get a discount. If, if, if you're buying a midlife crisis sports car, the, the car salesperson is not going to say, normally the Lamborghini is this price, but if you're experiencing hair loss and deep regret, here's you know 10%, 20% off so that you can get a better deal on the car. So I thought, uh, it's just an excuse to do things for you. But you know who's hit middle age? This guy. And it actually can feel a little bit real. Here was a midlife crisis moment for me. 
that happened a few months ago, beginning of the fall. As a family, we were dropping off our oldest child, Josiah, to college, and that's when I felt a little midlife crisis-y. Part of it was not just family milestones, thinking about, hey, this guy that was just born is now we're saying goodbye to him going to school. Some of you know that Josiah happens to go to the same college that Emily and I went to. So there, were, there was this overlay of memories. I wasn't just thinking about him. I was thinking about me and my time there, all cauldroning together. And as part of the parent drop-off day, which incidentally was much more elaborate than when I first, first day on campus, it was just like, they send you a map and good luck. And I just showed up with a suitcase and had to think, but now there's, the helicopter parents are well served by college first day now. So there was a student tour given for parents, and the tour was excellent. I'm at an age and stage as a parent where I'm fast becoming a veteran of campus tours that are run by students. Let's just say that they are of varying quality, but this one was really, really good, but it was too good. So she brought us around campus and kept talking about how great the school was and all the opportunities that you're going to have by going here both during college and after college, at school, during college, all of this amazing faculty and state-of-the-art facilities and a really tiny faculty-to-student ratio where you can really build a ton of good connections with your professors. There's actually a budget in the dean's office where as a student, if you want to take your professor out to lunch, the college will pay for it. And if you see a major that doesn't quite fit what you're hoping to do, you can design your own major and you can mix majors and then there's all these independent studies and you can do research for your professor and oh by the way TAs don't teach any classes here they're all taught by full professors and you have language study abroads and foreign study abroads you can do multiple ones of those opportunities 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 and then afterwards here are just a few of the fortune 500 companies that come every spring to campus and recruit here here are some of our famous alums and if you want to live on the coast, you can live on the coast. If you want to live internationally, you can live internationally. Doctor, lawyer, financier, governor, senator. You can do anything and everything that you want to do. That as I was being bombarded by all of these opportunities where the tour guide was saying, you can do this and this and this and this and this and this, I increasingly felt a sinking feeling in my stomach where I thought, I did this. And just to be clear, I think my this is pretty great. I have very little to complain about in my life, and I'm really grateful for that. But as I was hearing about all of these options, I was thinking, my this, as grateful as I am for it, is not that, or that, or that, or that, or that, or that. And they started spinning downward. The questions of what ifs, and are there still times? And granted, it was a high emotional season for me, and I'm an emotional guy. So that was part of it. I was overreacting. But then it was a moment of tangible reality settling upon me where I realized I'm pretty locked in right now. And what about for you? Have you ever felt that sinking feeling of, huh, I'm actually pretty locked in, too, right now. 
whether you're older or if you're younger. And you might not have a midlife crisis. You might not be middle-aged. Either it's ahead of you or behind you. Even apart from midlife crisis, even if you're a student, even if you're a young person, here's an early Christmas present. Your options are continually dwindling. Okay? Optionality is a continually diminishing resource where there are less life pathways available to you today than there were yesterday, and there will be less tomorrow. How does that sit with you? It's a little bit scary, especially as we're bombarded with optionality in every aspect of our lives, social media and otherwise. We talked about that last week. And it might be easier just to not think about it. And like Kathleen was talking about a couple minutes ago, numb out or float. But then here this morning, we have the final days of the patriarch Abraham. He's been with us for a long time in this long sermon series. This is Genesis 25. We first met Abraham way back at the end of Genesis chapter 11. We've, we've gotten to know this dude pretty good. And this is the end. And he's given a leisurely send-off which is an invitation scholars of this passage believe for us to consider. Think about this long life of Abraham and how it ends. What about you? As you think about the duration of your own life, whenever it will end, what will your life be marked by? What sort of legacy will you leave? And here's another difference between ancient times and modern times. For us in the late modern period, when we think about our lives, it's, hey, where is this going to go, and what do I get? But far more common in the ancient period, it's not, what are you going to do, and what are you going to get? It's, what are you going to leave behind? So let's talk about taking the long view here for a few minutes this morning. And by faith, as we take the long view, that's actually where we meet Jesus. So three parts from here. Let's talk about what this story encourages of us, then also what this story offers us, and then finally and briefly what the gospel promises. So, what the story encourages us and then offers us and what the gospel promises. Like I just said, this is the end of the life of Abraham, and he's given a full send-off. The story takes its time, and in the midst of Abraham's funeral and all that stuff, we get another genealogy. So if you've been tracking with this Genesis sermon series for a while and thinking, well, I'm glad that we're done with genealogies. It feels like we've had 10 sermons on genealogies. Well, here's number 11, and there could be some more coming down the pike as well. But what we've said about how to read biblical genealogies is it's less about going name to name. There is this person, then this person, then this person. But the better way to read genealogies is actually to read them against the grain and find what sticks out, the seams, S-E-A-M-S, what the bottom lines, the upshots in the midst of name after name after name after name. And what stands out in this passage is the purposeful redundancy that's given to the death of Abraham. Not all of these words and descriptors need to be used to get, to get across the point that Abraham's kicked the can. But listen again to verses 7 and 8. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Purposeful redundancy, saying, hey, take your time and reflect upon the death of this man, and you get all of these 
redundant details about his burial in the next couple of verses and his life. And would we consider ours? Both in Jewish interpretive traditions and Christian ones, that, that's one of the things that this passage has been used for. And what about you? Will you take the long view so that by the end, it can be said about you, good old days, full of years. And yes, there is a shift. Taking the long view is not something that we're really good at in this cultural moment, right? In fact, it's sort of the opposite. And behavioral psychologists will talk about this thing called present bias, where are we thinking about the future and we need to make good choices for years from now? No, I'm thinking about lunch today and what I'm going to eat because I'm hungry. And that's all there is to it. That's present bias. One article that I read that was surveying some of the studies that have been done, one of them had survey of people, and it was using real money, so money talks. Would you rather have $150 given to you right now or $180 given to you a month from now? What do you think the vast majority of people said? So you're offering me money now, but more money a month from now. I'll take the money now, please. That's present bias. The article talks about it like this including about this one survey. When asked whether people would prefer to have 150 today or 180 in one month, they chose the 150. Present bias shows up not just in experiments, but in the real world, especially in the United States. People egregiously undersave for retirement, even when they make enough money to not spend their whole paycheck on expenses, and even when they work for a company that will kick in additional funds to retirement plans when they contribute. But we don't. The cultural messaging is for us in so many different ways that if you're a human being, then you need to be 100%, 110%, 200% extremely happy right now. And if you're not 100% extremely happy right now, you should probably freak out a little bit because you're supposed to be and something's wrong. Or you've been wrong. But as we enter the world of the scriptures, we see instead... That the Bible tells us that's not how we're made. And granted, should we aspire to be happy or unhappy? Philadelphia sports aside, we should aspire to be happy, right? Bruce Springsteen, singer-songwriter from New Jersey, It Ain't No Sin to Be Glad You're Alive, Badlands, 1978. Good song. But if we get it in our minds and hearts and we're wired in such a way that everything is horrible, if we're not totally happy all the time, God has not built us this way. And if that's our goal and our quest, we're never going to be happy anyway. Instead, so toward the end. If you thought more about the end and ending up and ending well, how would that change the choices that you make right now? Whether they're health choices, financial choices, relational choices, vocational choices, locational choices. What might you do differently? And there's all these pastor sayings that can be said in connection with this and have been over the years. Things like funeral suits don't have pockets. Have you heard that one? You can't take it with you. In the old days when a person died, when a guy died, he'd have a suit put on him. But the funeral suits were expensive but didn't have pockets because you don't need them. U-Hauls don't follow hearses. And I've heard preachers say, including Tim Keller, actually, 
How many of us, at the end of our lives on our deathbed, will say, I wish that I had worked more? I wish that I had spent more hours in the office. I've joked to my family over the years, I'm worried that my tombstone is going to say on it, hey, let me just send one more email. But as the years go by, it, it, it cuts a little too close to home. But if we sow towards the end and think about what we might leave behind, that actually helps us to better navigate a difficult present. And if we live with a longer longitudinal focus, you'll be both more focused and more free. More focused, more intentional, and you'll have more fun. Because there's this not, when you're living in present bias, and this is for me, Tell me if this doesn't happen to you. Put it this way. Even when, say, you have a list of tasks that you need to do on a Saturday afternoon, and you say, oh, I'm just going to watch Netflix all afternoon. But there's that back-of-the-mind amorphous guilt because you're like, hey, I really shouldn't be enjoying this thing right now. So you shove it down, shove it down, shove it down. When we live with present bias, we normalize that amorphous cloud of guilt about, hey, are we spending our lives in the right way? And it just feels normal. We don't even notice it. But we can handle the present better with the longer view and kick present bias to the curb and not float and not push down the whole surfing and scrolling and binging that we do so much if we take a longer view. So there's longer view and connected with that legacy. What do we leave behind? And especially in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, one of the signs that there's been a fruitful and productive and blessed life is if there's lots of kids. And that's what this genealogy of all of Abraham's descendants talks about. This is what he left behind. Look at this blessing. Look at this fruitfulness. Look at this fullness. You see, at the end of the day, it's not about what you accomplish or what you attain. It's what you've built and what you've given, family and otherwise. Here's a preacher gimmick that I don't want to overuse, but it's okay occasionally if you die today. And I hope that's going to happen, obviously. What would your legacy be? What would be said about you as far as what you leave behind? So long view, legacy, and then also about what this story encourages us to generosity. I won't spend long here, but we see in this passage that Abraham is generous, verses 5 and 6. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away. So this passage is doing a couple of different things, emphasizing and underscoring that specifically it's Isaac who is the heir to the promise. But Abraham was generous not only to Isaac, but more broadly. How might you be more generous? We had a deacon training meeting this morning and had an uncomfortable con conversation, didn't we, Maya and Kathy, about how, wow, the Bible really calls us for, for a lot of generosity. And it's painful to even have to think about sometimes. But that's what God calls us to. Long view, legacy, generosity. Granted, caveat, real quick. I believe that what I've told you, including from this passage, is biblical wisdom. But it doesn't necessarily require a deep faith perspective. I think across uh, attitudinal and 
faith spectrum, there would be pretty broad agreement, even though, yes, we do live for present bias way too much of the time, we should take a long view. We should think about legacy. We should actually be more generous than we are. You don't need to believe in Jesus for that. Maybe at one level that's true, although Jesus is the best motivator in the world for these things. Still. And now we talk about what this story offers to us, and that's God's blessing. Verse 11 is not a throwaway line where it says there, God blessed Isaac, right? That's very intentional. At the beginning of the previous chapter in Genesis 24, verse 1, the author of Genesis says, God blessed Abraham, and now as Abraham dies, verse 11, and God blessed Isaac, signposting for everybody that this line of covenant promise continues. And as God blessed Abraham, so similarly, he blesses Isaac. What is blessing? It's one of those words that, you know, hashtag blessed, what does it even mean? We, nobody knows. Well, blessing in the world of the scriptures, it's divine favor that you can savor. Divine favor that you actually get to experience. So there's an objective part where outside of you, God gives you favor. But then you can also experience God's blessing in your life and savor it. And here's the best part of God blessing Abraham and then Isaac. If you're a follower of Jesus, God is committed to blessing you in the same way. Because you are heirs of that same set of covenant promises that climaxes God's plan all along in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, to the church in Galatia, both Jewish people and Gentiles, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you're somebody who's skeptical of spiritual realities or trying to put some of these pieces together, you might think, okay, we're offered blessing in Jesus. Okay, that sounds like something a pastor would say. It sounds like something the Bible would say, but it's not true. It's not true. It just doesn't happen that way. That's not how reality works. And I would simply say at this point, well, would you consider the alternatives? In the Christian story, we can look forward to a life that's fallen. We live in a fallen world and we're still sinful people. But we can boldly hope that God would meet us with blessing now and forever. Or door number two, no God above, pointless life that's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And we are entering a period here in the late modern West where any overlap that there may have been between secular people and followers of Jesus as far as worldview, life, the universe, and everything, those worlds are pulling away from each other. And Jesus following him is increasingly going to be radical. And one of the radical differences is completely different stories. If life is getting just worse and worse and worse and worse, the world's going to burn up one way or another, who cares about legacy? Does that really matter? And speaking scriptural sanity into a world that's weird, here's another one of these things. So you have people that care about the environment, environmentalists, saying, hey, we need to leave a legacy of care for the environment for future generations, for our children and for our grandchildren. We need to make intentional choices that will set up our world as well as it can be environmentally. And I agree with that. We, we've talked about creation care here in this Genesis series. But then you also have an increasing number of ethicists, people that talk about human morality, to say, hey, any impulse to try to privilege human beings over anything else in the world or the universe, that's specious. 
we don't deserve to stick around. You're being incredibly condescending to everything and everything, everybody else, every other life form, every other plant. So think about these two things. On one hand, we need to care for future generations and for our children. And then the ethicists say, caring for our children is bad, and we shouldn't do that. But in the secular world, somehow we're able to say, yeah, we're on the same team. We agree with the same things. But what if the emperor of secularity has no clothes? And these things just don't add up at the end of the day. But in the story centered in Jesus, where he has come, he's risen, and he's going to come back, there is a world where it just doesn't get worse and worse and worse. Instead, there's going to be a new creation of justice and peace and healing and harmony forever for all that believe in Christ. And there's blessing now. That's a different story. One other detail here for hope about how God blesses us, and you may have missed it, it's in verse 8. Sorry, verse 9, rather. And this is just a hint. But maybe for some of you that have been listening through the sermon series for a while, look who showed up at the funeral for Abraham. Not just Isaac, but in verse 9 we read, Isaac and Ishmael, his son, buried him in the cave at Machpelah. Think about the animosity between their two moms, Sarah acting horribly to Hagar at different points, Ishmael ridiculing Sarah. And so scholars look at that verse and say, we don't know for sure, but maybe, just maybe, and wouldn't it be so like the Lord to bring reconciliation between these people? Maybe the fact that they're at the funeral together is a hint of generational healing. And that's another huge way in which our world is spinning out of control. We've talked a, a couple different points, and this is where, of all people, followers of Jesus should be people of nuance. We're cutting family members off in our lives at record rates. And the nuance here is, including for some of you in this room or watching online, who may be thinking about or have distanced yourself from family members, there are many are there cases where that's what we should do. That, that, that's good and fair, and it would be unloving in various ways to let that relationship continue. And it's a good step to take. Can that happen? Yes. But then also we can ask, does it happen too much in our culture? Probably also yes. An article studying this thing put it this way. In an American study, more than one in four people reported being estranged from another relative. Similar research in Britain suggests a phenomenon. English people are more polite, so it's only one in five in, in England, while academic res researchers and therapists in Australia and Canada also say they're witnessing a quote-unquote silent epidemic of family breaking. But how might relationships be mended? the grace of Jesus and forgiveness. Part of what can put you in midlife crisis mode or a place of deep regret is you think about the accumulated relational damage, both that you've caused and have been caused upon you. But that doesn't need to be the end because of what the gospel promises. Briefly here, all over the place in the New Testament, there's constant reference made to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of 
all of these covenant promises and blessings that have run throughout the Old Testament. We've talked about covenant a lot of times here on Sunday mornings, and it's repeated over and over again. Hey, all those ancient promises are ours. And that includes the very first sermon ever preached by Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And what does he do? He mentions these covenant blessings and uses that language. And Peter said to them at the end of the sermon, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is the echo of Abrahamic promise. For the promise is for you and for your children, our offspring, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what the gospel promises to all that come to Jesus in faith. And that writes a different story for them. Hope for dysfunction, hope for damage, hope for sin. I've mentioned before one of my favorite books over the past 10 or 15 years, Julian Barnes, A Sense of an Ending. And it's a story about, if you can imagine a fiction writer writing a book about somebody's life falling apart, that's kind of what happens in this book. And the end of the story, there is accumulation, there is responsibility, and beyond these, there is unrest, there is great unrest. Jesus Christ offers you a story, including an end of the story, that is more than just accumulation, responsibility, and unrest. How would you choose now in light of that faith and that reality? And this is where we'll wrap up. If you're in midlife crisis mode, in Jesus, worrying that your life is half over, when we sing Amazing Grace, how does the last verse go? We have no less days to sing God's, God's praise than when we first begun. Whether your life is quarter over, 10% over, 50% over, 75% over, 95% over, to look at your life as far as it's mostly over or in part, in Jesus, that's simply not true. Because we have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. How then might we live? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.